Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. All right, everybody, and welcome back to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello, I'm Megan. (laughs) And I'm Lauren. Usually I start, so this is like a weird... Backwards. Weird backwards. Did that throw you, everyone? It was thrown. I was thrown for a loop. Yeah, so... First of all, I'm so happy that you guys are all so supportive and excited about us coming back on Halloween. That was really, really cool to see. And we're just very honored that people not only reached out, but just like all the downloads, super insane. So we thank you for always being supportive, even when we ghost you for a little bit. Thank you for forgiving us for just being like really garbage content creators at yeah. times. Because like we care, but also we're like real bad at this historically. So it's hard to stay consistent. We get overwhelmed <laughs> with life. Mm-hmm. But we're always honest with you guys about that. We'll always keep it 100. That usually if we go missing, it's because of personal reasons, like life happening and not because we don't like you. We don't like making this content because we do. We love it. Yeah, we're just really bad at telling you, like, right when it happens. We tend to just ghost you and then tell you, like, six months later, like, our bad. We should have. So sorry for not being better at that. But thank you for loving us anyways. This unconditional friendship we have with you. Yes. So today we are going to talk about a topic that is extremely topical and interesting. And if you've been a patron, you see me tease it a little bit. And if you've been following us on the Instagrams, you may have seen me tease it a little bit there as well. But before we get into that, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our patrons. So despite us not giving you guys a lot of content, we still got two new ones this month, which is amazing. And we're going to rework the tier at some point. But for right now, you're getting the shout outs and you're getting this video so you can Mm -hmm. see us in all of our glory. And whenever we're setting up for an episode, I'll always reach out to you guys and have you vote on what you want to hear or just, you know, create room to ask questions that you want to make sure that we answer in the episode. So um, I want to give a shout out to Court and Matt. Thank you, guys. The next one. (laughs) So this is so cool. Bob the Drag Queen and Monet Exchange and Jacob, who is their producer. They have their own podcast uh, called Sibling Rivalry. I know they don't need us to plug them because they're extremely successful. They're much bigger than we are, (laughs) uh, so they don't need this, but we're going to anyways. Thank you. Thank Thank you. We appreciate your support. We love you. And more about them later. We might circle back to them. We might. All right, next we have Vicky, Danielle, mm-hmm. Hector, yeah. Bobby. We have Jen, and Jen, I wore my black hoodie so I could look like a decapitated head for you in your honor. Excellent. I don't think look- it worked, though, because there is a slight hint of orange. There, but- There is some orange, uh, but it, it still works, and I accordingly am wearing... A giant cozy that Lauren gifted to me. So that was my that was my topical outfit choice. Yes. For the day. Very comfy. And Jen's so nice. I don't know if you saw this, Megan, but she had said, you know, 
because we offered. We're like, hey, guys, if you guys want a refund just because we weren't giving you anything for a while, we can do that. And Jen was just like, no, like I wanted to continue supporting you guys. And I knew like eventually you'd come back. And I figured it was just something going on. I was like, that is so kind. So kind. Once again, if you're a patron and you do want a refund, please just let us know. We'll gladly do that, obviously. Jen does not, but just in case anybody else does, let us know. Just let us know. We will not take offense to it. It's very understandable. And then our last patron is Julian, who is my cousin that I've only met one time. Hello, Julian. <laughs> Hello, Julian. <laughs> He's on my Ecuadorian side. It's very cool. All right. And then I also want to give quick shout outs to... Some people that we've had some fun conversations with on Facebook. We, like I said, we love, love hearing from you guys. So we'll always give you shout outs. So I had a great conversation with Jackie S., Jennifer M., Suzanne, and I always, I'm not sure how to say this, Sousa, S-O-U-S-A. See, mentally I say Sousa, but Sousa. I don't, I don't actually... Now, please tell us how to pronounce your name. Yeah, because I'm, I am sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. And I want to say it correctly because, you know, you definitely have been a longer term listener and I appreciate every time you reach out. I also saw Brandy liked one of our statuses. Do you remember Brandy? Brandy, how you doing? We she's, miss you. She's an OG. I love me some Brandy. Glad to have you. All right, guys. So we're going to get into it. Today, we're talking about the Sydney Powell case of Ohio. So this is a case about a gal who was at a university. Just to make sure that you know, this is a diff different Sydney Powell. This is no connection with Trump at all. This, this is, is not a the young Trump girl. Sydney Powell, to clarify. No. And it does make it more difficult for researching, I'll have you know. It does. It really does. Yeah, where I'm like, oh, this isn't relevant at all. <laughs> Interesting, but not relevant. Exactly. So the reason we picked this case is because, one, it's topical. We've really seen it all over the place, people talking about it. It's extremely interesting. And it happened in Ohio, which is fairly close to us. If you're a new listener, you may not know this, but we're in Illinois. Yep. So they're a neighbor of ours. And I think we both have family in Ohio. Yeah, and I actually have family right near Akron, so this, which is where Same. this took place. So yeah. they're in, in the area for sure. Yeah, I think. Can I just make one note before we get yes. into what actually happened? Is I think I just want to like clarify a bit of at least my, but I think our intentions in doing this aren't yes. to just like jump on the bandwagon and make this case more salacious than it needs to be. Like that's right. not at all our intention with this, but I think. With this case, there's so many people talking about it right now. It's such a big, like, media storm, media frenzy. I know there's been lots of TikToks about it. Like, it's fairly big. And that's not really why we're doing this. Mm -mm. But it's such a good launching point to really discuss the concept of an insanity plea in the U.S. Yep. court system. And that's really the point that we want to hammer on because this case did involve that and it's just a really good example of what that actually looks like in practice and the complexities on it so just a reminder that this is a recent case these are real people 
Yep. This is a very sad thing that happened. Yep. And the family, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about the family, but I think, you know, we want to be respectful of all people. So we're really just trying to use this case as a framework to discuss the U.S. legal system and mental health. Yeah. And especially for our listeners where you are not from the U.S., I think our legal system may surprise you. (laughs) You might learn a lot about our legal system. It is pretty interesting how all the legal systems differ. But just piggybacking off what Megan said, we definitely want to lean heavy into, of course, as always, like trigger warnings. We are talking about a death. We are talking about mental illness. We are talking about being in the legal system, different forms of mental illness. But also, as Megan was saying, these are real people. This is a relatively young woman and there's a loss you know, there is a loss that happened there. And we were kind of talking before we started recording about, you know, the difficulties the dad must be facing right now, because I'm sure as a parent and as a spouse, that's incredibly difficult to navigate. So we do want to enter into this with a certain level of compassion. And as Megan was saying, we want to educate and hopefully this helps people maybe wrap their head around the case a little bit better and just kind of be able to use it as an example if they're trying to wrap their head around, you know, concepts like the insanity plea. Right. Because we're not really here to diagnose Sydney. We're going to talk about it and like the arguments on both sides, but we're not here to weigh in on what mental illness we personally think she has or all of this. It's more about the complexities of how mental illness can impact a court case when something like this does happen. Right. And even like the legal definition of insanity, how that's like different than because like in the mental health world, we don't use that phrase, you know. But yeah, it's just it's interesting how the legal jargon can be different than mental health jargon. Right. And in most cases, the legal term like They'll colloquially call it the insanity plea and like the media will say that the technical legal term is usually not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. That sounds better. Yeah. Sounds a lot better. Okay. So we're just going to first get into the logistics of this case in case you're not familiar. So I'm just going to give you guys the rundown. Um, And if there's anything I mess up, Megan, you just let me know. Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about Sydney Powell of Ohio. In this case, there is Sydney, the young girl that we're going to be referencing a lot. And then there's her mom, Brenda, and her dad, Stephen. At the end of 2019, Sydney, who is a student of Mount Union University in Ohio, was suspended for poor grades. So she had failed three of her four classes at the time. So Sydney essentially went home for winter break and acted as if nothing had happened. Her parents did not check on her progress at school and weren't notified of her being suspended from college. You know, they're trusting that if there's a problem, she would have expressed that to them. And usually, like, colleges won't tell your parents because you're an adult. Some cases they can with permission signed, but, like, For the most part, I think that's pretty typical. Your parents wouldn't necessarily know. And I can also say, I don't know if you've ever experienced in clinical work, have absolutely had clients choose to not tell their parents they failed classes. I think that's absolutely fairly straightforward so far, right? 
people fail college classes, they're adults, they don't always tell their parents that that happened. Yep. Very, very normal. So as I was saying, she went home for winter break, essentially. So in January, Sydney went back to school and she hadn't shared her news with her roommate. Her roommate's actually named Lauren, but it is not me. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a twist? What a Lauren twist. went back to college and years ago and is actually Sydney Powell's roommate. Yes. No, what that's not me. Different Lauren. So essentially, she hadn't shared this news with Lauren either. Lauren had no idea. Later in February, admin from the university found out that she had been staying in her dorm and they wrote her a letter essentially stating that because she was suspended, that she wasn't allowed to stay in the campus dorms. Also totally reasonable. Yep. After she received this letter, she allegedly told Lauren that she was moving away for a while to figure things out and she had the support of her parents in doing so. What actually ended up happening is, and this came out in court based on receipts and everything, during this time, she was either staying with friends or staying in hotel rooms. So her parents still did not know at this point. Eventually, Sydney would come during the day while her parents were at work. So this isn't super strange in the sense that I had looked it up and it looks like they're only like 45 minutes away from her campus. So it is reasonable for them to have her come home that frequently and why it might have felt normal at the time. And, you know, she would say things like, oh, class was canceled or I can attend this one virtually today. And so the parents really didn't think anything of it. Another key factor in this case is something called Life 360. So essentially what this is, is it's an app on your phone that all of your family members can be connected with so that your parents essentially can track your whereabouts. You can see where everybody is. I definitely is, heard about this. And yeah, yeah. Not not important. This comes up in my practice all the time. Uh, stop putting your friends on Life 360. Yeah, stop. I just just stop it. <laughs> I personally am not a big fan of tracking your loved That's ones. That's what I'm saying. But it is really common to use it. But I know a lot of people who have their friends on this, who have family members who. You're, why why is everyone stalking each other these days? It can be a safety thing in certain situations, and I won't discount that. But like, we don't need to follow people all the time. Yeah. Well, and the other part of it, too, which I've talked with parents about before, is it's tracking their phone. They could leave their phone somewhere Mm -hmm. and then you don't know where they are. So really, it comes down to an issue of trust. But that's something that you guys can talk about in family therapy if that is an issue for you. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, so so they did have this. Mm -hmm. So the next thing that was weird to this family that kind of like tipped them off that like something was going on was Stephen, the dad notices that the tuition isn't being taken out of Mm -hmm. his bank account so in march the university called Stephen and told him that sydney was no longer enrolled i believe that he suspected that she was using life 60 to make sure she wasn't at the home like to see when they were coming home so they didn't know she was home was at least from what I had read. Because she would, like, leave right away. Right, and, like, say she had somewhere to go. So he suspected that she was using Life360, so he left his phone at work so that he could go home without her being aware that he was on his way. Yes. So that happened. 
he was able to confront her at home and Sydney admitted to her dad that she was having trouble in school but was still attending classes. So still didn't really confess to everything quite yet. Her father encouraged her to finish the semester and then take the summer off. He then asked his wife to come home and talk to Sydney about the situation more because I think he needed to get back to the office at the time. Yes, and also I had also read in addition that Brenda was a child life specialist at the hospital, which meant that she worked with families with terminally ill children. So she had a lot of training in like de-escalating situations and having more like empathetic conversations Mm -hmm. and those difficult ones. So I had read that in addition, he felt like she was better suited to respond to Sydney's emotional needs Mm -hmm. about this because of her kind of I'm assuming personality as well as work experience. Yeah. So he thought that like she would be better equipped to continue the conversation. So he brought her in. Yeah, which totally reasonable. And I'm sure she does have really amazing skills when it comes to handling emotionally difficult conversations. So totally get why dad did that. (laughs) Brenda comes home and... I think on her way home, she had called the university just because I think she just wanted to get all the details of what was going on so that she could approach it in the best way possible. And once she got home, Brenda received a call back from the university. The administrator on the phone started to talk with Brenda, and then the administrator heard a loud scream followed by a thud and an expulsion of air. The call was eventually dropped. And the administration repeatedly tried to call back to make sure Brenda was okay, because obviously those sounds are very concerning. Finally, someone picked up claiming to be Brenda, but they could tell that it was Sydney as they had conversed with her several occasions before just through all the academic things she was struggling with. And and I think we should clarify, this is a pretty small school. Pretty small. I I Mm -hmm. believe it's a very small school. I have a family member who's actually used to be a college professor in the area Mm -hmm. um, at the bigger university. This was not the bigger university. It's like a small private yeah. yeah, so it's it where like the administration who had met with her multiple times would remember that because it's not a college with like fifty thousand students. Exactly. Like they would they would know her. Yeah, no, thank you for that context because that matters, right? Yeah. So admin, of course, very concerned about this, called the police to do a wellness check. But when the police showed up, Brenda was alive but severely injured. She had been hit many times with a cast iron frying pan and stabbed repeatedly with a steak knife. Police found Sydney in the fetal position at the end of the driveway, and she had been continuously scratching the ground until her fingers started bleeding. Sydney had claimed there was a break-in, but after exploring the crime scene, it was clear that she had staged a break-in. So what she had done is she had smashed a window, but she did it from the inside. Mm -hmm. So clearly, if someone's breaking in, they're not going to do it from the inside not generally i mean i guess during a break-in a window could be broken from the inside just via other factors but that wouldn't like indicate a break-in that would indicate a struggle of some yeah like some sort of someone trying to flee i don't know i don't know yeah i also just want to note i did some fact checking and the college has about 2500 students which is smaller than my high school so definitely small enough that the administration would know who the students that you know, were having struggles, would know them well enough to recognize their voice. A hundred percent. Yeah, that is yeah. a tiny college. That's a tiny, yeah. 
Okay. So naturally, when police officers came on the scene, saw this, they took Sydney. There's a bunch of body cam footage that you can look at if you want to. Clearly, you know, exhibiting some behaviors. Doesn't seem super grounded in reality. I think that's safe to say. So what ended up happening is, unfortunately, Brenda passed. And this turned into a major court case. So Sydney entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. The verbiage that they used was she concedes she killed her mother but was in the throes of a psychotic break. Prosecutors argued that Sydney's pattern of lies served as proof that she was competent and sane when she killed her mother. So just to fast forward so that you guys know what happened at the end here, Sydney was charged an indefinite sentence of 15 years to life after being found guilty of all charges related to the fatal stabbing of her mother in her family's home. Based on the way everything just kind of shook out in court, they felt that she couldn't use the insanity plea and so she got the charge based on what they found. Yeah, and I think an interesting note with this case, right, is I know we've touched on this briefly, but like a lot of times with the court system, they're trying to determine two things, which is one, did you actually commit this crime? And two, can you be held legally responsible for this crime? And in this case, whether or not Sydney did this was never a question. Like everybody right. on all sides agrees that, you know, on basically two facts of the case, which is that one, Sydney did kill her mother, and two, she is mentally ill. Everybody agrees with those two things. So what this case ended up really being about is when it's the not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect, it's about can you be held legally responsible? And right. when, you know, the mental defect part, that part, you know, they specifically say Sydney did not have a mental defect. So that would be like, brain damage, a severe cognitive mm -hmm. disability, something where like it's just determines that you're not because of the way your actual brain is capable of being held responsible for a crime um, or the mental disease. So mental illness would be the mental disease. Mm -hmm. And that's where they're getting to is the real question was, is she mentally ill in such a way that she's not legally responsible for having committed this crime? So it was never about if she did this or not. Right. She even admits she, she did. Admitted. Like, yeah. She did. She concedes. She says, yes, I did this. Yes. You know, I think the intruder story with the broken, I think that was probably panic. She was probably panicked at the time. You mm -hmm. know, I, I could assume a bunch of different things. We don't know. We weren't there. But I think that was more of like a fear-based response at the time. That's something that you'll see in honestly a whole lot of cases. And mm -hmm. I mean... That, that can come up in a lot is there's a difference like there's some crimes where you can pinpoint that somebody has a carefully orchestrated fake break-in, right, right? Where right. like you can tell there's like there was a lot of thought put behind it and that was their original intention and there's plenty of other cases where something happens and you can tell afterwards they attempted to make it look like something else. Mm -hmm. They have different theories on it. The defense and the prosecution's experts, which we'll go into in a little bit. Absolutely. So prosecution was basically stating, you know, based on how she was behaving surrounding the whole situation with her grades, it seems like she kind of had this elaborate plan to keep it under wraps. And they were kind of using that to say, you know, she was 
mentally aware of her actions at the time that this happened. So one thing that I definitely want to point out as we are discussing this is Megan and I are able to bring a couple lived experience pieces (laughs) to talking about this, right? So Mm -hmm. with Megan, you have been an expert witness in the court system, right? I have not. Um, I have never been qualified as an expert, and I have no interest in being qualified as an expert, (laughs) quite frankly. Same. Um, Which, do you want me to get into a little bit about the expert witness stuff? Yeah. No, please. Cool. So basically, you know, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I do have a background in forensic social work, but my background in forensic social work was doing victim interviews of child victims of violent crimes, usually sexual assault. But I I did interview about a variety of other cases as well. And so I have testified in court before, never in a trial, because this is just a fun fact about the American legal system. Almost nothing actually goes to trials. So like I did 200 interviews, at least none of them actually went to trial. So um, most cases either don't or tons of plea deals happen. And so I've never done a trial, but I've done a lot of pretrial motions. And so because of the nature of my job, I was never qualified as an expert what I was testifying on is the actual interview I conducted. And that's really my comfort level with testifying in the legal system, because mm-hmm. in that case, the interviews that I conducted were videotaped. So the only thing that I had to testify to was like, we're going to watch this videotape and I have to testify like what my training was and literally what happened in the videotape. So I wasn't qualified to like give an opinion Awesome. On any of this. It was very much like, these are the facts of the case. I'm sure that Um, was so relieving, not having to be put in that position. Exactly. And sometimes, like, the defense would get you to try it. It's just like, that's outside of the scope of a forensic interviewer. Like, it wasn't Mm -hmm. my job to say, yes, I think this happened. No, I don't think this happened. It was my job to say, like, this is literally what the victim said happened. This is how I conducted the interview. Mm -hmm. To be qualified as an expert, which I've seen people. Have you ever watched the whole trial happen before? Not a full trial, no. Okay. Just, like, pieces. Yes. I've sat in on multiple trials before just because in the nature of my job like going with families that I've worked with or just big cases that our agency worked at we would go to the trials and I did that in my internship and in a job previously so I've seen them and I have watched a hearing where somebody was qualified as an expert in this case it was a medical doctor he was Mm. a certified child abuse pediatrician that we worked Mm. pretty closely with in a case that one was it was a shaken baby syndrome case oh, and he had worked directly with the child but was also qualified as an expert and so in that case he had to go through you have to go through your entire work experience so there it's it's weird it's like a job interview almost it is and you have to basically prove not just your own involvement in the case but that you have a background as such that the American legal system is acknowledging that you have enough credentials that your opinion is actually relevant is essentially what it is. Like you have so much experience that we can qualify that you are an expert in this. So if you say that you can actually give opinions and say like, yes, I think this person has this diagnosis. Yes, I think this person was capable or not capable 
in that one case I was mentioning, it was the doctor testifying that, yes, he firmly believes that the injuries sustained in that case were only the result of a baby being shaken and could not right. be better exposed. I like to clarify the baby was actually okay. The baby did survive oh, and the good. baby was doing quite well. So in that particular case, the baby did live. But having to testify that like, yes, this is the only explanation based on my experience. So that's completely different than what I did. I don't have any desire to ever be an expert in court cases because I I don't think that my opinions are so great that they should have bearing on people's freedom, essentially. Yeah. I think that same. your opinion can be flawed um, and it's great for those witnesses. So in this case, I didn't see it would probably be... I didn't see any of the court TV stuff of the experts in this case being qualified as an expert. Sometimes that happens in pretrial, sometimes not. But there's a whole essential hearing or status that you go through where in order to be qualified as an expert, you have to explain your credentials and answer tons of questions from the judge. And then the judge decides, yes, you're an expert or no, you're not an expert in this. So that's well, like a that's, whole other thing. That's what's interesting is like I'm having like flashbacks because once... I was brought into a, a court situation for clients of mine, and they wanted to present me as the expert witness. And it was at the time I wasn't fully licensed. One, I was still getting supervision, uh -huh. and then two, I just no one had, I guess, like prepared me for like what was going to happen. So you know, like I reflected on all of my notes to prepare to give you know whatever testimony I could but it ended up coming down to getting like grilled about my resume and if I remembered like certain dates in terms of like oh did you finish your thesis on this date and mm -hmm. just like all of this stuff and it's like well like you're under oath so you have to be like I believe so, <laughs> you know, like, don't, like, arrest me if I don't remember it, like, perfectly. So that was just, like, very anxiety-provoking. And at the end of the grilling session, you know, they came to the conclusion, like, yes, she's not an expert witness. You know, she may have worked with these people, but she can't serve as an expert witness. Right. So it, it was just like very intense. A lot of times it's you can testify to the facts of the case, but you can't right. testify as an expert. And like, if you're not an expert, you don't get to give opinions. You're very much, right. you can be like, you know, you might review your notes and be like, yes, I met with this person on this date. Yes, they mm -hmm. made this report. Yes, I made this report to DCFS on this date. But your opinions aren't relevant. So if they're like, do you think that this happened? You can just, then you just use the canned legal response of, it is outside the scope of my practice to determine the truth or falsehood of any allegations. Love I've it. had a lot of, that's that's how you do it. Even uh, I've had similar with interviewing training. I think there's just a defense attorney that felt that I looked too young to be, that's, that's really all I can go off of. <laughs> mm. I looked particularly young to do this because he kept asking if I had enough training to do forensic interviews, which fun fact, the only required training is 40 hours. So like I was well and above that, but I had to go through the exact start and end date of every single job that I had had since grad school. And he wanted like two the day and the judge eventually yeah. was like, next time you can request a resume. But it was a lot of like the, I do not recall the exact date that I started Same. the job. That's like, what I don't I, recall I kept that. being like, like, I don't recall. I do not recall because, I mean, it's... And that has nothing to do with, like, 
your credibility or anything Mm-mm. like that. It's just like most people don't like hyper memorize a resume. Like that's just I don't. I think if we asked any of our listeners what the exact date they started a job that they worked at seven years ago, literally none of you are going to. I mean, unless you started on your birthday or something or, or like something relevant. Yeah. Like you're not going to remember that. But that's kind of the level they're going into. And so to actually be qualified as an expert, which all four psychologists who testified in this case were qualified as experts. So they are all expert witnesses. And even then, you know, I think Still that grilled. can. So they were all grilled pretty heavily and they had to show that. But I think that also just demonstrates I was reading something on the concept of the not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect from a defense attorney in Ohio near Cincinnati, not near Akron. But the website was really helpful. And he was even talking about like when they use that about 50 percent of the time. The defense and prosecution just immediately agree that this person is not guilty and it's just handled elsewhere. A bunch of the cases plea and then the least likely outcome is a battle of the experts court case. And that's what this court case was, is it was. It's very rare. Yeah, it's exceedingly rare for it to go this way, but they were all qualified as experts and came to different conclusions. Even the defense ones all came to like different conclusions slightly. And the different diagnoses. And that's where this gets really tricky is like, who do you believe is the most expert? Like, they're all qualified as experts. Their opinions are all relevant per the judge. But different experts come up with different opinions. And like like you're saying, it sounds like with these experts, they were able to look at things at different periods of time. I feel like that plays a role. We're not even addressing this right now, but just like if they're doing – testing and you know like these different like batteries how does trauma play a factor you know she just witnessed her mom dying how is Mm -hmm. that going to affect how she answers questions potential ptsd symptoms that are popping up for her you know like there's so many x Mm -hmm. factors and that's why it's so complicated because yes you know as mental health professionals you do have a dsm you do Mm -hmm. have a battery of tests that you can do but there's also perception there's also what information you're given and also considering timeline and when they were introduced to a lot of this. Yes. Yeah. And I don't have the exact timeline of anything. Same. But as you'll see when we go more into it, Sydney did undergo a lot of psychological interviews and a lot of psychological testing. However, some of that testing was done years after the yeah. murder occurred. And um, that's going to skew results. How could it not? You completely. Know? And I think the tricky thing with all of this, and I mean, we'll, we'll get more into this later, I'm sure. But just essentially, this is my own terminology, is that the use of expert witnesses in a case like this is basically giving an archaeological approach to a mental health diagnosis where you're looking at evidence backwards. It's like a dig. You're digging into this person's life from a previous time point to try to determine what their diagnosis would be at that time and how it would have impacted them at that time. And it's not that you can't come up with an accurate diagnosis that way. But as you'll see with a lot of the testimony here, I think the tricky thing, and I'm not trying to say that I don't think that these experts are qualified. I'm sure they are qualified. I haven't read their whole credentials, but I'm sure they're very qualified. But what it comes down to is, as you'll see with the variety of diagnoses, there is some opinion here. And regardless, there's no way to conclusively prove, regardless of the diagnosis, 
the mental state that a person is in at the exact second that something happens. And that's what they're trying to get to in this case. And that's why it's complicated. It's very difficult to go back and prove. Exactly. Exactly. You know, how on earth do you <laughs> do you reflect that or can you prove that? It's very complicated. So because I'm sure a lot of you are wondering, you know, what exactly is the insanity plea yes. and why is it so hard to prove? You know, Megan kind of gave some insight based on her experience, like working in the legal system. But let's do definitions and just kind of yes. expand on that. So the legal definition of insanity, and again, insanity is not a term that we use in the mental health world, can vary somewhat depending on the jurisdiction, but has commonly been used in the United States, and it was known as the Naughton Rule. I don't know if that's how you say it. Is that right? I think so, yeah. Okay. It's weird. If you see it written out, you'll be like, oh, I don't know how to say that either. So <laughs> this rule originated from the 19th century English case and has been influential in shaping the insanity defense in many common law jurisdictions. According to this rule, a person is considered legally insane if at the time of committing the crime, they were so mentally disordered that they did not understand the nature or quality of their actions or they did not know what they were doing was wrong. So in other words, to be found legally insane under this rule, the individual must have a severe mental disorder that significantly impairs their ability to comprehend the nature of their actions or to recognize that their actions are morally or legally wrong. It's also important to note that different jurisdictions may use variations of the insanity defense and legal standards can change. The definition and the criteria for the insanity plea can be complex and may involve assessment of mental health professionals during legal proceedings, which is why there was a bunch of psychologists involved. Yes. So why exactly is it hard to prove? Well, several reasons. <laughs> so the first one is the stringent legal standards. Many jurisdictions have strict legal standards for insanity, often requiring that the defendant did not understand the nature or quality of their actions or did not know what they were doing was wrong. Proving such a state of mind beyond a reasonable doubt can be challenging in and of itself. Mental states are subjective and can be challenging to measure objectively, like we were saying. It is often difficult to conclusively establish an individual's mental state at the precise moment a crime was committed. Right. Sometimes, like in the case of what I was saying, more of the like what the legal system would dub the mental defect. There are some people that have something going on with their brain that like they can pretty much never be held responsible. So those ones are easier to prove, right? Like if you have a permanent brain injury that... And it's has been documented... Been for yeah. years then a lot of times that one they'd say this is the plea and it would just get taken care of pretty quickly because again that if it's a constant state is easy to prove if it's mm -hmm. not a constant state it's more complicated and i also think too one of the biggest misconceptions that i've heard people say about this defense is that if you're found not guilty, then you're not held responsible for the crime. And that's not true. So right. if you're found not guilty because of this, then typically one of two things happens, which is one, sometimes you're actually not 
fit to stand trial. That's one thing. Like, they can yep. also say, like, you are not mentally capable of going through a trial because you have to be able to participate in your own defense, in which case you can be institutionalized indefinitely until such a time when you are able to do that. And if you're, you know, say in this case, I think 15 years, possibly more, mm -hmm. was the outcome. So, like, if, if she had been found not guilty by reason of insanity... Then she would have served 15 years in an institution, not right. in a prison. So she wasn't going to get away with this in terms right. of like She's not, not going home, not serving time. It would be like at a treatment facility in some cases for the amount of the sentencing, in some cases permanently, just depending on the jurisdiction and the individual facts of the case. So it's not like this defense means like you get to just go live your life. Exactly. You might spend the rest of your life in an in institution and it is like. An actual institution. It's not like a right. nice mental health facility. Not that, I don't know, I've never been in one before, but it's... I mean, the only one that I know of, like, I think a lot of people know of in this area is Elgin. Mm -hmm. Elgin has a big history of having an institution there. And from everything I know about it, it is kind of a scary place. You know, there's a lot of folks, often not based in reality, mm -hmm. and there aren't the same security measures as a prison so that's something to consider too well and also keep in mind like an elgin there are some people just get regular hospitalized at elgin too but there are oh like yeah there's actually like a lower level part yeah but mm -hmm. there's this special it's basically a specialized unit that is just people who have committed crimes that have been mm -hmm. found and then the tricky thing too is we're not trying to cast a negative picture on you know people with mental illness and like we've always said it's exceedingly rare that somebody does something like this as a result of mental illness but when you're coming down to a grouping of people who have committed a violent crime due to their mental illness that need to be treated for it there are additional safety concerns in those facilities yep. and it's not the safest place for anyone, staff or yeah. resident in that case. Like, it's just there's right. a lot happening there. Yeah, there's definitely a reason I would never, like, apply to work <laughs> in that type of uh, scenario, you know? Very but, glad for the people who do work there. You're amazing. Yeah. Lauren and I are not those people. I am not that person. And then the other part I think I just want to touch on for a second as we're kind of talking about it is I really dislike about this case how they're painting schizophrenia so for me that's kind of the interesting part i bring to this conversation is that i have worked with people who have this diagnosis in a residential facility and very familiar with like research i think we actually do have an old episode about mm -hmm. schizophrenia right we yeah. do okay. yep. yep so if you want to go listen to it go listen to it but the part that i don't like about this is that they're trying to say, and when I say they, I'm talking about the defense team. They're trying to say that Sydney kind of had like a cluster of concerning symptoms and then killed her mom. And that's better explained by a diagnosis of schizophrenia. The problem I have with that is that most people with schizophrenia that I've ever heard of come across and research, you name it, there is a slow burn of concerning symptoms. Very rarely does it go from I'm failing grades to I'm killing somebody. Right. And so 
for that community, there's already so much stigma and misunderstanding of what it actually means to have that diagnosis. And I feel like this is further perpetuating that narrative of if you are schizophrenic, that means you are a violent person and can just go off at any moment. And I don't think that's fair. And, you know, as I believe we talked about in the episode on schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder, people with those disorders are much more likely to hurt themselves than to hurt yep. other people. It's not that it is impossible for someone with schizophrenia to commit a murder, as in any person with any mental illness or no right. mental illness can commit murder. It does happen. But not as likely as I think these cases can make it feel like. And again, it's not impossible for it to go rapidly from like, you know, destabilizing from failing in class all the way to committing murder. It absolutely can happen. Mm -hmm. And we're not even really trying to weigh in on if that's what happened here or not. But it can happen. But that's not the regular occurrence in cases of in psychotic episodes right that's not what typically happens that doesn't mean it couldn't have happened here um but that's just the kind of like regular check and not letting media representation convince you that having this type of diagnosis means x y and z because it doesn't it does oftentimes and the other part is too you hear the diagnosis schizophrenia and people automatically have these assumptions of what that looks like but the reality of it is there are tons of other disorders that aren't as well known that are violent Mm -hmm. you know there is that difficulty with emotion regulation and they are more likely to hurt other people but you don't really hear about that in media so i just wanted to like pause on that for a second because that's like my bone to pick like with how this has kind of gotten sensationalized where it's just like guys can we can we not right (laughs) can we not do that also i would like to point out that the media representation of this case largely fixates on schizophrenia as a diagnosis. There are, from what I counted, five different discussed diagnoses at play here. I might have missed a few. And we'll break down exactly what those five that, as far as I know, there were five that were discussed in testimony. There might be more, but... There are there are multiple different diagnoses that were discussed both by the defense and the prosecution. But again, the newspapers, the media coverage really latched onto schizophrenia. And that's mm-hmm. what you see in the headlines. But that's not the only thing that was discussed here. Right. The only potential. And mm-hmm. what's interesting, and I know we've spoken on the podcast about this before, is that in terms of diagnoses... I I don't think it's common to have, like, two biggies. Usually you have the one, (laughs) right, Mm -hmm. that, you know, kind of affects everything else. I mean, I'm sure you have a more eloquent way to say that, Megan. I mean, I like biggies. I think biggies. (laughs) I like biggies. I think that's the colloquial term. Really, what we look at is that people tend to have a primary diagnosis and there may be secondary (laughs) or the biggie Uh, biggie. there may be secondary diagnoses but like the smallie i guess is what we would call the second one right and you might have a variety but what it comes down to is you know for example one that i see all the time and i'm sure you saw this in your practice as well as like primary diagnosis is post-traumatic stress disorder right person Mm -hmm. clearly has ptsd 
But then you could also do secondary diagnoses of major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. but really from a treatment framework, everything's kind of coming out of the trauma. So like you right. can it's really... better explained by the biggie. Right. And like they meet the criteria for the other things too, but like you kind of get the feeling that if you resolve the trauma, everything's going to kind of ease up quite a bit. So you focus on that. So you would probably only like bill under the PTSD. Yeah. You might add other ones under a treatment plan just to, you know, CYA or cover your ass a little bit, but like it's yeah. all kind of in there. So you tend to have like one thing that explains almost everything. It's the primary diagnosis is the one that explains things the most but there might be other diagnoses too and this is the same for like regular medical billing as well right like you go to the doctor and you might have i mean i'll even just give an example from my son was recently sick right and he had an ear infection and a cold right i would kind of see on his paperwork the ear infection was like the big thing that they talked about Mm -hmm. because that's the one that actually required medication but then there's also like a sub like also has a little bit of a cold and this is the self-care for a cold because in that case the ear infection is the more relevant diagnosis it doesn't mean the cold's not there it's just it's a cold it's kind of whatever right so you see that with all medical things but that's also true in mental health yes yeah so it, it was interesting watching the testimony and seeing at certain times two biggies presented at once it's like interesting <laughs> interesting choice here But, you know, that's not to say that they're, like, unqualified or anything because, again, like, these people have been in this profession for a very long time. As a mental health professional, I think it just kind of struck me as odd where I was just like, huh, okay. I think there's also just inherently a difference in how you conduct a diagnosis for the purpose of treatment and how you would conduct a diagnosis for this. This is just, it's a different set of diagnostic skills because I guess if you're trying to prove something for the legal system, you're probably trying to go with everything versus I don't see that a treatment therapist would necessarily do the diagnosis this way. Yeah. Because um, I know, I think I know exactly which two you're talking about that the one defense expert said. And I'm like, I don't know mm-hmm. anyone who would ever diagnose both of those in the course Mm-mm. of treatment. Mm-mm. But like, not that it's necessarily incorrect. It's just interesting. Like, it's noted. <laughs> like, it's an interesting way to approach this. And I think it's also for me interesting because I don't know how on earth you could differentiate which symptom you felt like was explained That's what by I'm which saying. diagnosis. Like, it almost makes it case. more confusing. Yeah. From a treatment perspective, there are three out of the five diagnoses that are discussed in the case, I feel like, are all just like. It reaches a personal opinion point of what diagnosis you think is actually fitting the symptoms that you're seeing. And yeah. It's just, it's, it's interesting. It's like a multiple choice. Yeah. Which one would you choose? But yeah. And I mean, all of this to say, obviously, there is a highlight on her diagnosis for the sake of the case. When it comes to actually helping Sydney, you know, relieve whatever symptoms she's having and move forward and, you know, all of those things. At the end of the day, the diagnosis isn't really going to matter too much, except for maybe some medications that she's taking. The person that she ultimately ends up working with is going to work with her on the symptoms that she's having. And there won't be that extreme magnified zoom in of like what her diagnosis is. Like that's just not going to happen. And again, like from a treatment perspective, we also tend to just focus more on like what cluster 
Yeah. What illness do you have? It's like, oh, like, this is trauma-y or this is whatever. Yeah. Right. Like, because there's plenty of cases. This one comes up a lot where, like, I'm sure you saw this too, right? Where the symptoms that somebody comes with could be explained by generalized anxiety disorder or could be explained by social phobia. And that line is so thin sometimes yep. because people with generalized anxiety, particularly younger people, tend to be very social focused. Like if you're mm-hmm. dealing with like a middle or a high schooler, right? That's just the brain development. So you could like argue for days on if you felt like generalized anxiety or social phobia was the more relevant diagnosis. But either way, you're treating anxiety as it pertains to social interactions. It really isn't that relevant specifically in that case, because also they're going to be given medication to treat the anxiety if they're given medication. Just like in this case, they're going to give you antipsychotic medication regardless of which of these diagnoses that they feel like. Mm-hmm. is the best so again it's like in treatment it's not quite as vital to parse it out this much most of the time in some cases it absolutely is for the purposes of medication but that's not always the case yes okay so let me just go through some other reasons why insanity plea may be hard to prove mm-hmm. outside of everything that we've mentioned <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we mentioned this already, but just expert testimony variability, you know, you're looking at it from several mental health professional perspectives. And like we said before, it could be a timeline thing. It could be a perception thing. There's lots of X factors that come to play with that expert testimony. Another one that we didn't really talk about too much was uh, the public perception and skepticism. So there is often skepticism among the public and the legal system about the legitimacy of mental health claims. Some may perceive the insanity plea as a way to avoid responsibility or punishment. And as we were saying before, you know, I I could understand why the public might assume that. But hopefully you can gather from this conversation that they are not escaping, you know, responsibility or punishment they definitely aren't just living their lives freely after this happens like there's still a course of action and there's definitely some cons to that the next one is stigma surrounding mental illness so societal stigma surrounding mental illness can influence perceptions of those using the insanity defense Mm -hmm. jurors may be hesitant to accept that a person with mental illness was genuinely unable to comprehend the wrongfulness of their actions Mm -hmm. so stigma misunderstandings all of that we kind of touched on that with the schizophrenia piece mental health evaluations post-offense so evaluating someone's mental state at the time of the offense especially after the fact can be challenging mental health assessments may rely on retrospective analysis, which introduces inherent difficulties in accuracy, as Megan was saying, kind of that archaeologic approach. Mm -hmm. There is a limited success rate, so statistics indicate that the insanity defense is not frequently successful. Jurors may be inclined to lean toward a finding of guilt, especially if they perceive the crime to be severe or if they have doubts about the defendant's mental state. And lastly, burden of proof. In many legal systems, the burden of proving insanity often rests on the defense. Mm -hmm. This places a significant responsibility on the defense team to present compelling evidence and persuade the court or the jury of the defendant's mental state. Right. And I think also in this case, it was a jury trial. 
We'll also point out, too, that media coverage, I think, mm-hmm. can also be a Big huge one. factor in how they perceive this. And, you know, with the phones, internet, all of this, it's kind of impossible to keep a jury from hearing anything if the right. media like really goes they say, goes oh, don't case. talk to anybody, don't watch TV or whatever. It's like, okay, are we sure? Like, that's not happening. Right. No. And in some cases, they might sequester the jury so they have to stay in a hotel and not interact with people and like surrender their phones and stuff i don't think i saw that that happened in this case you don't know the impact um and obviously i mean i'll just point out i'm sure that sydney's defense team is going to appeal the outcome of this case if they haven't already that's kind of a benchmark of the american legal system especially for murder cases they're going to appeal they always appeal you should kind of always appeal that's just how our legal system is built so I don't think that this case is fully done with either. She was found mm-hmm. guilty, but I'm sure there's going to be appeals and there's going to be other stuff. And I'm sure the media coverage of this case is going to be a relevant factor in appeals and tainting a jury would be my guess. Absolutely. All right. So at this point, we are going to do a part two because as you can see, this case is complicated and there's lots of things to unpack. As we said before, these are real life people and we have a lot of empathy for the family and just everyone involved as they kind of navigate this. Mm -hmm. And we're just trying to help you, our listeners, understand the legal system a little bit better, the mental health system a little bit better, and just kind of talk about things that were interesting or surprising just as people in the mental health world. I mean, so I guess on that note, is there anything, Megan, that surprised you from this case? Like, not in, like, a judgmental way, but just kind of like a, huh, like, that's interesting or, you know, maybe I would have explored that more. Mm -hmm. I think, and I guess, well, I'll go into this a lot more in part two to really go off of this, but I think the thing that surprised me about this case, right, we're talking about the number of diagnoses, and I really want to dig into some of the testimony to highlight a point of this, is how much the perception of the experts completely changes the outcome of how they're presenting the case. So, like, you know, we'll go into this more later, but, like, I'll just give an example, too, is that the prosecution is making the argument that their expert witness that, you know, Sydney had a history of lying and that she had been orchestrating this huge lie about not being in school and pretending she was in school and she wasn't. Whereas the defense is making the argument that Sydney was experiencing delusions and genuinely mm-hmm. thought she was still in school when she wasn't. And there's so much behind that where it's just the interpretation of the facts can be so different per person based on their own experience and I think in this case like I don't know how you felt about some of the testimony but like there's a lot of testimony on both sides that sounds plausible like it like all of it sounds plausible but in the American legal system you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt and I think that's why she was found guilty and why the insanity defense didn't work is because again the facts of the case she did do this and she does have a mental illness per everyone Mm -hmm. in this case we haven't evaluated her we can't comment on it what it is but the the defense wasn't able to prove beyond a doubt Mm -hmm. that she wasn't criminally responsible at the exact moment and it's just i don't know how you can ever prove that yeah yeah 
No, I, I totally agree with you. I think the jurors probably had a hell of a time. Because mm-hmm. I, obviously I was not part of this trial, but just like watching it, reading about it, you know, all of that. Also, like you said, there were moments where I was like, oh, like maybe. You can you see know? it on both sides. I think also I was surprised. I think I read the jury only deliberated for nine hours and I was very surprised that it was that yeah. short of a deliberation. I would have expected it to go on for a lot farther. It's very interesting. I think the part that surprised me um and now that like you said there's a way to like read the transcripts versus like watching the whole mm-hmm. yes, <laughs> thing i want to go back and and read the transcripts but i feel like there really wasn't a lot of attention on they were talking a little bit about concussions and head injuries related to soccer Okay. So I was curious about that in terms of like traumatic brain injury. You know, is that something that was ever looked into? I know they did some brain scans for epilepsy. I'm curious though, like if you're doing that sort of scan, if you would also be able to pull information about a traumatic brain injury. I'm just not sure. Yeah, they might have to do more of a functional MRI for that, which I'm not sure if they would have done. Yeah, I think also now I'm just reflecting on some of the testimony that I read too. And maybe this is just like the difference of presenting for a jury versus like actual therapists. But even to the amount of times that like I heard the experts mention exactly what measures they administered, but not clarify the results of the measure where it's like I administered all this and this is my conclusion. It's like, but what did that specific measure say? Which right. might have been like, in there somewhere. What was their score? Was it like a, a borderline, like, could go either way? You know, like, there's a lot of questions about that, right? Yes, yeah. And even on the, um, there's a scale that administered that came up a lot of time to determine if Sydney was malingering, which in this case mm. would be faking her symptoms. And I was reading an interesting research article this morning about how there's not a research-established cutoff for that malingering measure. But again, that's stuff that's not mentioned. And I think so much of this is so much more complicated. Right. And that's why this is so hard. Right. And and this is, like, why we're talking about it. And I know we have a lot of other mental health homies that listen to this. And I'm sure they all have questions, too, like we do, where it's like, but wait, like, what about this? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, did they make the cutoff did they not make the cutoff did you consider this when you were running this battery like i don't know there's just like a whole bunch of things where it's like i just have questions mm-hmm. you know <laughs> i'm just like i'm just wondering i can't help it just because like curiosity how did you guys navigate this like right. you know it's a very complex case as you guys can see which is why we're going to do a part two mm-hmm. and so in the part two if you guys have questions or you are just having some thoughts afterwards that you want to share with us, please let us know. And also, if you have certain things that you want us to look at specifically and just hear our take on it, let us know about that too. Feel free to send to our email account, which is spookypsychpodcast at gmail.com. That's where you can send us your questions, thoughts, concerns. Once again, just a heartfelt thank you to our incredible listeners and patrons. If you haven't already, consider becoming a patron Mm -hmm. to unlock some fantastic perks, including access to our video recordings. You get to see us live and in action. Mm -hmm. Uh, The power to vote and provide input for upcoming episodes and exclusive behind-the-scenes photos. We're going to try to add some of those, too. Cool. 
a more structured Patreon tier is in the works. We will let you know once we have established that. Yep. And also, if you are enjoying the podcast, we want to hear from you. Your feedback means the world to us. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review. We genuinely value your thoughts and opinions. And connect with us on social media. So follow us on Instagram under Spooky Psych Podcast for updates. And check out our TikTok posts under Dark Wave Lab, which is my audio production company. We love hearing from you guys on any of these platforms, so don't hesitate to reach out and join in on our conversations. Yeah. So for today, should we end on some good shit? We should end on some good shit. Why don't you go first? I gotta think about it. Okay. My good shit is a cute story about my son. So he's starting to understand Christmas more. Like, I don't think he fully gets it, but he's, like, understanding certain themes. So, you know, he is big into Miss Rachel. So, you know, there's, like, a Miss Rachel. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? So there's, like, a Christmas episode. And so we've been playing that a lot for him so he he can watch and kind of pick up on some of that stuff. So they were talking about stockings. Mm -hmm. And so we had been noticing that he kept, like, taking our oven mitts. And we're just like, oh, like, maybe he's pretending to play kitchen, like, whatever. But I noticed he was, like, sticking his toy cars in the oven mitts. And I was just like, oh, wait, you think they're stockings? That's so cute. That's adorable. I know. So it's just, like, a lot of, like, little precious moments like that where I'm just like, you're just such a pure soul. I love you. Yes. Yes. That is wonderful. You do have an excellent child. He's a good one. I'm a big We're going to keep him. Big fan. Big fan. I'll go cute, cute child story for my good shit as well. Uh, so my my son just turned seven months like a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. And we kiss his face a lot because he's a very cute little baby. Of course. And they, the other day I asked him if I could give him a smoochie. And he literally just opened his mouth as wide as he could and just planted it on the side of my face and like stayed oh. there. So I think he's like starting to learn. Like, he's starting to understand language more, which is really cool because there's studies that babies mm-hmm. understand language way before they can speak. And, like, he understands so some signs. He's attempted to, like, communicate with me a little bit more with sign. Not very well, but, like, you can tell he's attempting. But it was just very cute. And he did it to my husband as well, where he, like, say something. And he just, like, open mouth, just smears his tiny little open mouth all over your face. And I'm like, you're trying to kiss us back. And that is the cutest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. It's very precious. That's so sweet. Yeah, your mind would be blown. Benny does a lot of sign. And I, I haven't taught it to him because, you know, I'm not familiar. Um, this is purely through Miss Rachel, but I have learned <laughs> through Miss Rachel as well. So a lot of him attempting to do some of his first sentences, like he uses a lot of sign or like he'll he'll sing songs. Mm-hmm. So he'll be like, you know, the more we get together, 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 Aww. your friends are my friend. Like, and he'll do like the whole thing. And it's just so freaking cute. I remember the one time I babysat Benny and you're like, did mm-hmm. you sign to my kid? And I did actually, because I just kind of like naturally do that. So I think mm-hmm. I've. I've reinforced some of Miss Rachel's educational sign language a little bit. It's I not d- bad. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, you know, and then I, I get curious and I want to learn too. Yeah, I, I, I'll teach you some okay. more. I can teach you some more. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, obviously, I think our good shit is going to be a lot more parenting related. Yeah, just because we're Sorry, we're in guys. the we're in the thick of it with young kids right now, both mm-hmm. of us. And I think it not like it's the only thing going on in your life, but just like for me, but especially, it's usually the cutest thing going on in my life. It, it is, I think, for me especially too. Like I, I really only work about like ten, twelve hours a week right now, so I'm very much yeah. like I'm primarily at home. Uh, which is my choice and I love it and I'm very happy with it but and it's kind of funny when some of my friends are like so what's going on with you and I'm just like really baby stuff because I'm so in the thick of it and it's not like Mm -hmm. I'm just like I don't have much going on outside of like caretaking right now which is okay that's the part of life that I'm in but it does get funny at times I'm just like I can tell you like 50 million adorable baby stories my other good shit is just that it's beauty calendar advent unboxing season on YouTube and Ooh. I live for this shit. This is like my I didn't YouTube know. thing. It's my YouTube thing. Actually, one of my favorite YouTubers. Are you familiar with Alexandria Ryan? No. She does really excellent uh, beauty advent calendar unboxings. And Ooh. my husband just refers to her entirely as Kentucky Lauren because he th- just, he just he literally. <laughs> Tim's just like, oh, you're watching Kentucky Lauren because like she reminds me of you so much. Um, she also. Oh, has- I have to check her out and be like, wait. I'll send you a video. She's really funny, and she actually got diagnosed with ADHD after her YouTube commenters are like, girl, you clearly have ADHD. Talk to your doctor. And that's how she got oh. diagnosed is enough comments like, um, you have this. So she reminds me of you. So it's like watching you unboxing beauty advent calendars and going on <laughs> I would love to. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. So that's my other, that's my like non-baby related good shit is that I'm definitely like, he goes to bed, I'm like putting in my earbuds and just like watching advent beauty advent calendar unboxing videos i don't know why i love it so much but i do maybe it's like the thrill of it like ooh, what'll be in there what's in i don't know i this is a this is an idea for maybe ourselves or our listeners i feel like we should come up with almost like conversation starters or conversation cards that you can use with new moms because it feels like oh, like, I don't have anything to talk about except my kid, but, like, all that shit's important. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just asking questions differently, yeah. you know? And also stop asking new moms if they're sleeping. Just don't Because do no one is. Everyone's tired. Everyone has had way too much coffee and is a little anxious. Yes. So stop asking how the baby – stop asking if the baby sleeps through the night. I hate that question. I get that all the time. And I've gotten that question since my son was like two months old. And I'm like, no, he is not. Anyway, parenting mom stuff. Mom <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for listening in. We appreciate you always. And thanks for getting spooky. Thanks. Bye.